Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right. Let's dive in. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 35, and we're actually going to finish up Matthew chapter 9 today and look at the first verse of chapter 10. If you're new with us, welcome. My name is Dustin Daniels. I'm the pastor teacher here, and we are glad that you're with us. Um, if you need a Bible, we got them in the back. That's our gift to you. Make sure you take that home. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 9, let me review. So we studied the really an amazing story last week of two blind men who knew something that the crowd didn't know. Even the, they didn't, the, even the disciples didn't know. And that was that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus has a lot of titles. We looked at the son of David last week, meaning that Jesus is the king of kings and he is the savior of the world. We saw how Jesus tested these men. He healed these men. We also learned that Jesus healed a demon-possessed man. He was mute, so the demon prevented this poor guy from, from speaking. Now, the interesting thing about these, these two particular miracles is that Matthew didn't provide any details, uh, nor are they found in other Gospels. So the emphasis really was not so much on the miracles it was on our response to the miracles. It was on the, the, the crowd's response and the Pharisees' response. So key point from, from last week, we said this, that Jesus performed miracles so that people would believe his gospel message. That's the whole point to all of the miracles that people would believe. Um, after the miracles, we saw two different groups of people respond in two different ways, didn't we? We saw the crowd and how the crowds spoke about Jesus. The crowds were amazed, but they didn't believe. And then the Pharisees, they spoke against Jesus, right? They refused to believe. And then we, cl we closed last week with whether or not we choose to believe this gospel message. Well, today we have a significant shift in Matthew's gospel here. Jesus moves us from his miracle ministry to his discipleship ministry. And up until this point, Jesus had done all the work, and the disciples, they're hanging back and they're watching as Jesus works. Um, in Matthew's, Matthew chapters 1 through 4, we met Jesus, right? We, we learned the genealogy of Jesus. Um, we saw him with the credentials. We watched him uh, get baptized. We learned about the bloodline of the Messiah, and then Matt reveals in uh, chapters 5 through 7 how Jesus teaches. It was the Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we saw Jesus in action. We saw him healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead. So for the past year and a half, for the past really 70 weeks, 70 sermons, Matthew has directed our attention to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ. 
but like a, a great player who becomes a coach. Matthew shifts our focus now on how Jesus trains his disciples for ministry. In Matthew chapter 10 here, we're going to see how the work of Jesus expands through replication. And today we're going to learn three things. Number one, Jesus' model of discipleship. Number two, how this is important for us as the church, corporately. And number three, what our individual role is. So let's take a look at this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 and following. If you would please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Just as we sang those songs, let's lift our voice and read this scripture together as, as, a, as a church. Starting in verse 35. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed, dejected, like a sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Summoning his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and every sickness. Guys, these are the very words from God this morning. They are authoritative. They are without fail. They are inerrant. They are inspired. And I pray that we hear them as such. Please pray with me. The psalmist writes, the Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all of his creation. Now, Father, we can't thank you enough for your compassion this morning. I pray that the, the things that we've got going on in our own lives, the things that we're concerned about, the things that are stressing us out, the things that we just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, Lord, that you would have compassion on those fears, that you would have compassion on our health, that you would have compassion on our lives, and Lord, that your presence would overwhelm us, that we can rest in your compassion today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Thank you. All right, verse 35. So Jesus continued going around to all the towns and all the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. Now, the first thing that I noticed here in verse 35 is that Jesus continues. He continues his ministry, right? Because last week we, we heard that awful attack by the Pharisees. They, they, they can't deny the miracles of Jesus, so what they do? They denied the source of the miracles. So think about this. We've got Jesus, almighty God in flesh and bones. He's working these miracles. And these guys, the religious people, the pastors, the priests, and the ministers of the day, they say, no, he's not God. He's actually a demon. He's demonic. That's where he gets his power from. Jesus says, yeah, I don't care. I don't care what they have to say. I'm going to get the job done. So Jesus continues. He knows they're wrong, right? Jesus has nothing to prove. He's got nothing to hide. He's got nothing to lose. 
So Jesus continues fulfilling his mission. What's the mission? Verse 35 tells us in detail here. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and the villages. What's he doing? He's teaching in their synagogues. He is preaching the good news of the kingdom. And he is healing every disease and every sickness. So Jesus' mission, his primary responsibility is teaching, preaching, and healing. So notice this. When Jesus, how he continues, he goes to all the towns and all the villages. So one question that we should ask ourselves is, well, how long did that take? Well, verse 35 is a summary verse. The picture here is that Jesus, he's in a continuous rhythm. Jesus goes to a town, he teaches, he preaches, he heals. Goes to another town, teaches, preaches, heal, and heals. That's what he does. This is a, he's in a, a continuous rhythm. Now, can you imagine how exhausting this is? To go from town to town doing the same thing, dealing with the same issues, but different people. There were just over 200 cities and villages in Galilee. The difference between a city and a village, by the way, is that a city has a, a wall, a fortified wall to protect it. A village did not. So in the 200 plus cities and these villages lived over 3 million people. 3 million people, guys. So Jesus, to, for him to visit all of these places, it took months. It may have taken close to a year. But look what Jesus does when he goes to each town. Number, uh, verse 35, he teaches in their synagogues. Synagogues were the center of the Jewish life. Uh, the word synagogue literally means a gathering together. The Yiddish word for synagogue is shul. And it reminds us of school, doesn't it? So when 10 Jewish men lived in a community, uh, a synagogue could be formed. So obviously, the larger the cities, the, the more synagogues there are. Think of a, a synagogue that's similar to the local church today. Now, there are some differences because the synagogue was not only a place of worship, but it was also a town hall. It was also a courthouse when it needed to be. The building itself was usually on a hill, and it could be recognized from a distance because it had a, a, a tall pole sticking straight up into the air, much like a church steeple today. The reason for this um, was so that a visitor in town could always find his way to a synagogue. He would look for a hill. He would look for that pole. So what did the people do once they got to the synagogue? Well, Philo, a Jewish scholar, he said this, synagogues are mainly for the detailed reading and exposition of Scripture. Synagogues are mainly for the explanation, the interpretation, the illustration of what God's Word has to say. And we see this, this practice um, in the book of Nehemiah. There's a couple places, but I wanted to show you Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, look at this. All the people assembled with a unified purpose. What's the purpose? To learn God's word. So they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So Ezra, the priest, he brought the book of the law. So he's got the Hebrew Bible. He's got the Old Testament. It's on a scroll. And he has it before the assembly, before all the congregation. 
Look at, look at this. The assembly includes men and women and all the children that were old enough to understand. Everybody is together. So Ezra faces the square just outside the water gate. So he is preaching and teaching outside. But look at this. From early morning until noon. Their, their church service is probably 6.30 a.m. to 7 a.m. All the way up until 12 noon. All in favor? <laughs> you guys. All the people listened closely to the book of the... They listened closely to what he had to say because he was teaching out of God's word. Ezra the scribe, he stood on a high wooden platform, right? Has been made for the occasion. Um, he stood on the platform in full, of, in full view of the people. And I love this. When they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. And they read from the book of the law that God... Um, excuse me, they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping people to understand each passage. Jesus does the same thing. He, he read the scriptures. He explained them slowly and carefully. Um, and this is what he does. He, the first thing that he does when he goes into these towns is teaches in the synagogue. We got an example of this in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 4. So Jesus goes to his hometown. He goes to Nazareth. Um, as usual, look at that. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. And this is an Old Testament passage from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is, is on me. Because he has anointed me, that's Jesus, to proclaim the good news to the poor. He, God the Father, has sent me, Jesus, to proclaim, uh, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free the oppressed. After he's done reading, he rolls up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and then Jesus sits down. All the eyes were on Jesus. And Jesus said this, this is so good. Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. He goes on to teach it. As it so happens, the congregation really didn't like that message. Um, but you can, you can learn more uh, if you go home and read the rest of Luke chapter 4. So all, all that to say this, guys. Those passages provide an insight as to what we do and why we do the things here at River Bible Church. Um, I, I mentioned a few weeks ago there is a reason that we do all the things that we do. We are to read the Word of God, explain the Word of God, illustrate the Word of God, and then just move on to the next verse. So not only did Jesus teach, verse 35 says, He preached the good news of the kingdom. So what's the difference between teaching and preaching? Well, teaching is done to train someone. It gives someone a specific skill or knowledge. Preaching, on the other hand, it's this idea of proclaiming. It is heralding a message, and this message for everyone to hear. What's the message? The message is the good news. It's the gospel. 
So when Jesus preached, he, he not only presented the Old Testament laws, but he also proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand. That's why he said that. That's why John the baptizer said that. So when Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom, what he was doing, he was revealing, he was unfolding these, these mysteries that were in the Old Testament, but nobody could explain them. But Jesus came to explain them. He was also providing new revelation about God's plan of redemption. Now, here's the other thing about preaching. Preaching gets personal. This is why we don't like to be preached at or preached to. We don't want anybody telling us that we need to change the way that we live. We need to change the way that we think. We need to stop behaving in a certain way. Now, we certainly don't want anybody to say, uh, you know, that's called sin. We don't like people doing that. So today's church has, has two tasks as well. Number one, we are, te- we are to teach the whole counsel of Almighty God. Teaching is where Jesus always began, and teaching is where we must start as a church. That's why our mission, by the way, our, our main assignment, right? Our vocation here at River Bible Church in the Verde Valley is to teach you in a way to where you're going to experience God verse by verse. Number two, we are to preach the gospel. We are to proclaim the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of our sins. And once again, that's why our vision is to share Jesus day by day. We just can't keep this stuff to ourselves, can we? All that does is just puff us up. It just makes our head big. We got to get out into the Verde Valley and, and share it and, um, and share the good news of, of the gospel. So that's why we've got our mission and our vision, by the way, nailed to the foyer wall for everybody to see as you come in. Well, verse 35 continues here healing every disease and every sickness. So after Jesus does all of these these miracles in chapters 8 and 9, and we've been studying this for the past three months now. We're pretty familiar with Jesus' miracles. We've discussed how the miracles verify his teaching and his preaching. We've discussed how they are intended to bring people to faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But one thing we haven't mentioned yet really is the impact of Jesus' miracles on the disciples. Because Jesus went way out of his way to, um, to make sure that they were eyewitnesses of everything that he did. And the reason he did that was to continually build their faith. Jesus wants to make sure that they know, that they know, that they know, that they know that Jesus is Lord. So we can look at Jesus' teaching, his preaching, and his healing really as three pillars within the Christian faith. And guess what? When you, when you look at, at history, you're going to see that Christianity gave birth to universities. Universities teach. The synagogue gave birth to the church. It's where we preach and teach. And uh, Christianity also gave birth to hospitals. It's where we go to get healed. So verse 36, Matthew continues... He says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. So Jesus looks at the crowd. He feels compassion for people. God is a God of compassion. And he's always been compassionate. Uh, 
lots of, of um, examples of this in Scripture. Let me show you three from the Psalms. Psalm 25, 6. The psalmist writes, Remember, O Lord, your compassion. Remember your unfailing love, which you have shown from long ages past. Psalm 40, verse 11. Lord, you do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and your truth will always guard me. And then Psalm 51.1. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. So why is compassion important today, especially in our passage today? Well, Matthew wants to make sure that we understand that that Jesus is compassionate because the scribes and the Pharisees were not. These guys lacked compassion, and, and they've been lacking compassion for a really long time. The prophet Ezekiel says this. This is amazing. So the Lord is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel here. Chapter 34, verse 2. He says, What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, you wear the wool, you butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. You haven't taken care of the weak. You, you haven't tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd. They are easy prey for any wild animal. Therefore, you shepherds, you hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. All right? So the Lord is speaking to, to people who are pastors ministers, and priests. This is what he says. He says, I now consider these shepherds my enemies, and I'm going to hold them responsible for what has happened to my flock. I will take away their right to feed the flock. I will stop them from feeding themselves, and I will rescue my flock from their mouths. The sheep will no longer be their prey. <laughs> Dang. So Ezekiel, he provides a background of what's been happening um, and really how the scribes and the Pharisees got to where they are in the, in the first century. Jesus shows up. Back to our gospel text now, verse 36. So Jesus shows up. He sees the crowds. He feels compassion for them. Why? Because they are distressed. They are stressed out. They are dejected. They are rejected from the people who are supposed to be helping them. They are like sheep without a shepherd. So as a good shepherd here, Jesus, it's almost like he's standing on a hill and he can see the faces of all these people because there's a crowd around him. He sees the pain. He sees the hurt. Verse 36 says they were distressed and dejected. The picture here in verse 36 is that they were harassed. The pastors, the ministers of the priest of the day harassed God's people. Harassed. It literally means flayed. The skin and the flesh, it's torn, it's mangled. These, 
These men and women are battered. They are bruised. They are ripped apart by the words of these uh, scribes and these Pharisees. They are worn out. Religion has exhausted them. So Jesus saw the crowds. He saw them, he saw them as, as helpless and hopeless. And the reason for that is because they did not know their Bible. They should have known it. They've had it for centuries, but instead of focusing on God's truth, these shepherds, these scribes, and the, these Pharisees, they demanded, they put more emphasis on all the rules and all the traditions instead. The shepherds of the first century, right? They moved away from the reading and the exposition of God's word. And they taught them their words. Instead of the grace and the love, the forgiveness that is found in the Old Testament. So these so-called shepherds, these scribes and these Pharisees, what they did is they exploited the people that they were entrusted to serve. And as, as Ezekiel points out, God does not tolerate that. Verse 36, they are like sheep without a shepherd. So in other words, God's people were leaderless. There's no leader. And, and I want us to realize that today the very same thing happens. Many so-called pastors and priests and ministers, they intentionally today, they keep God's people out of the kingdom. How do they do that? First and foremost, there are religious cults that are disguised as Christian. Secondly, pastors do the same thing by not teaching the whole counsel of Almighty God. They're too busy trying to be cool and clever. They're trying to be hip and funny. Somehow they, they think like this is some kind of TV show or radio program. And they're the announcer and everything is just great and wonderful. And I'm going to give you the, the seven best tips to your best life now. And dear friends, you've got to be careful of that because it is demonic. That is not what church is about. What's the result? What's the result today? It's the same exact thing. Time changes nothing. The result is that the, the flocks are starved. They're, they're starving pe people of God's word. And that breaks my heart. Verse 37. So Jesus said to his disciples, he says, look, guys, look, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. So what's Jesus talking about here? What's he mean by harvest? Well, he uses that term three times in two verses. So it's an important term. Many of us have heard that this harvest represents lost people. But when you read through scripture, you're going to see here that God reveals a very different picture about this word harvest. The harvest is God's judgment. It's God's judgment on lost people. The Apostle John says it this way. There's lots of verses. I, I chose this one to share with you. Revelation 14, 14. John says, I saw a white cloud seated on the cloud with someone like the Son of Man. The Son of Man, that's another title for Jesus. He had a gold crown on his head 
and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, what's that sharp sickle remind you of? Death, right? The Grim Reaper. Now, keep in mind, the Grim Reaper may be funny or cute during Halloween, but it's not funny or cute here. Dear friends, this is as serious as serious gets. Verse 15, another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle, for the time of the harvest has come. The crop, the, the crop on the earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. So in other words, the whole earth was judged for its sin. Verse 37, Jesus goes on to say, the workers are few. So what's preventing people from hearing the gospel before this judgment day? What's preventing people from hearing the good news? Well, the answer is there's not enough workers. Uh, so in other words, who, who's going to share with these people the most famous Bible verse in all of Scripture? Who's going to share, the, share with them that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world, but to save the world, and he saved the world through him, through Jesus. Anyone who believes in him is not guilty. You're not condemned. But listen to this, guys. Anyone who does not believe is already condemned. You're already guilty because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. We need workers to, to tell people about Romans 6.23, to talk about the wages of sin is death. Every time we sin, there is a wage attached to that. And those wages come due. And that's what the harvest is. That is judgment day. But you can't stop there in, in Romans 6.23, can you? For the wages of sin is death. That's bad news. Here's the good news. But the gift of God is eternal, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need workers who, who are going to warn people of the false shepherds today. Matthew 24, 24, false messiahs and false prophets, they will arise. And look how scary this is. They're going to perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, even the church. Wow, that is scary. So the metaphor of the harvest, it, it points to the judgment on sin. But what Jesus does, he makes a tweak from it. From the Old Testament to the New. And what Jesus does, he focuses more, excuse me, as a positive. He moves the, the needle in a positive direction here. So Jesus focused on gathering people into his kingdom so that they can avoid judgment. So although the harvest for salvation is plentiful, the workers are few. So we understand this, don't we? We understand Jesus' illustration. One person physically going out into this massive field with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of acres to do the harvest, that is not going to fly, is it? One man cannot do that. 
to do that, many people are needed. I find this fascinating, and it just can't be anybody. We studied uh, how Jesus turned down people. He turned them away who thought they wanted to be disciples. Verse 38, Jesus goes on to say, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So here we come to another passage that is taken out of context. It's misunderstood many, many times. We, we often hear preachers put a guilt trip on their church and use this passage. They say, you know, they say things like, well, you know what? If you're not going to pray for the missionaries, if you're not going to go yourself, well, I guess God can't do it. His hands are tied. And I hear stuff like that, and I just think, man, oh, man, nothing's changed. These guys are acting just like the scribes and the Pharisees in the first century. And then if pastors don't use guilt, ah, they deflect to humor. What they do, you know, they, they say some really corny things. If it's going to be, it's got to be me. How's that for some cheesy bumper sticker theology? <laughs> Does Jesus say things like that? No, he doesn't say things like that. He doesn't take what he um, what's written in Scripture and take it out of context? Of course he doesn't. So many times this passage is preached like it's all about us. It's all about the church. It's, it's all about us doing more for missions and preparing people for evangelism. But let's look at this verse again. Verse 38. My question is this. Who's doing the work? Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So the Lord of the harvest there, that represents Jesus' title. That is him as the judge. It is the church's responsibility to what? To pray. We are to pray to Jesus, the Lord of the harvest. And the reason that we are to pray is because he's the one doing the actual work. He is the one. Look at it. He's the one sending out workers into his harvest. Our job is to pray before that work is done. And it's amazing, isn't it? It's the Lord who lays things on people's hearts. He has gifted every single one of us. If we're a part of the church, he has gifted every single one of us to do certain things. That's why we're all so different in here. That's why the church is, is it's a I call it a beautiful disaster at times because it, we are, we're so different and yet we're so unified in the Lord. Our job is to pray. Prayer, that's how revivals begin, is through prayer. I don't know, I was thinking about this, and maybe, just maybe, we got too much singing in church today. Maybe, maybe we got too much doing. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's, there's, there's too much preaching. I know there's too much eating. I know that. <laughs> but is there enough praying? I, I find it so fascinating here that Jesus didn't command the disciples to pray for the lost. He tells them to pray for workers. 
Why? Why does he tell us to pray for workers? Because when we pray for workers, we can't help but notice that God does something with our own hearts. He's changing us as we pray for workers. Now look what Jesus does in chapter 10, verse 1. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. Wow, that sounds familiar. Jesus has taught these men. He has trained these men. He has basically put them through seminary for years. And today, chapter 10, verse 1, is is their day of ordination. It's time for the next phase of Jesus' training. This is their internship. Every good seminary has an internship. Now, Mark's gospel gives a, a, a few more details. Let's look at that. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. So Jesus called his 12 disciples together, and he began, look at this, he began sending them out. He sends them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick. So no food, no traveler's bag, and no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but but not to take a change of clothes. No suitcase, no credit card, no backup plan. Why, Why would Jesus do this? Because he's training the disciples how to trust and how to trust solely in him and him alone. Jesus will provide. Verse 10, he says, wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned these people to their fate. They will be judged. So the disciples, they went out and look what they do. They're telling everyone that who they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. They're telling, they're teaching. The message is always first. Verse 13, they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. So the miracles proved, once again, it validated the message. The message came first, and then the miracles to validate that. Now, as these guys were on their internship here, being an intern, let me tell you, that's where you get beat up. That's where you get bit and bruised up because, you know, it's really easy to romanticize ministry. This is another verse. Um... Chapter 10, verse 1, this is another verse where our prosperity preacher friends, they will take things out of context. The first question we have to answer is, who is talking to whom? So let's look at it again. Summoning his uh, 12 disciples, he. Summoning his 12 disciples, he. That's Jesus, right? Jesus gave the 12 disciples supernatural power. It's important to note here that this verse is describing what's going on. It's descriptive of what happened that day. It is not prescriptive, meaning Jesus did not give you and me this supernatural authority. That the healing power was only given to the disciples. Now we see the major differences between when Jesus tells his disciples 
what to do here and versus what we're supposed to do today. So let me give you some examples. Number one, the audience is different. Jesus sent the disciples to the Jews. So the audience is different. We were to, were to go to all the world, right? Matthew 28. Secondly, the message is different. The disciples preached a message that went like this. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king is walking on the earth. Our message is John 3.16. That he gave his one and only son so that you would believe and that you're not going to perish. And then third, the means is different here. Jesus gave the disciples supernatural powers. We, on the other hand, we are called to pray. We are to bring the elders together of the church. And we are to anoint the sick with oil. James chapter 5 verse 14. And those are just a few examples. So do you guys see what I mean by something being descriptive versus prescriptive? There's a lot of things that happen in the Bible that we are not supposed to do. One last thing on miracles here, because our worldview and our culture just loves this idea of seeing these guys on stage healing people. There's a reason that miracles become less and less in the book of Acts and in the epistles. There's a reason that the Apostle Paul could not heal himself. The Apostle Paul couldn't heal Timothy with his stomach issue either. Did they not have enough faith? I mean, we are talking about the Apostle Paul and Timothy. No. The miracles served as a messianic credential, right? So proving, once again, that Jesus is God. So what does all of this mean for us today? Well, once again, it depends on where you are. We've got believers in here today, and we've got unbelievers in here. So let me, let me speak to, to those of you who don't believe this message, that you are an unbeliever. Let me first say, I'm glad you're here. I pray that you're um, experiencing God in, in a way that you've never experienced Him before. But please note what this passage reveals to us today. It, it reveals that the harvest is abundant. The harvest points to your sin, that there is a payday for sin. And the sin is either paid by Jesus or it's paid in eternity in a very real place called hell. Secondly, if you are a believer, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are called to pray for workers so that Jesus will send them out into the harvest by praying once again, we start to realize our responsibility. Now, here's where the local church comes in. This is important. The church's responsibility is to feed, tend, and feed the sheep with God's word. John chapter 21. So, as you are fed spiritual food, prayerfully you become encouraged, you become empowered to do your part. And that's one of the many, many reasons we don't have like one or two formal ministries that we support here, because you go out and you give what you learned away, right? You share Jesus day by day. You come here on a Sunday, Wednesdays, small Bible 
uh, studies, whatever that is. You get filled back up, you go back out into the world, and you give it away. Each one of us has a specific ministry. I think that's really important to understand, is that God has gifted you to get in front of people that other, others of us can't get in front of. Many of you are, are business owners, but your business owners, really, you're, you're more of a, a secret undercover evangelist disguised as a business owner, right? Many of you can, can talk to people that I, I couldn't even get in the door with and vice versa. And that's the beauty of the local church. So our job is to fill you up for you to go back out and give it away. And that's how God builds the church. God has been building the church. He has been sending out workers into the harvest. And there are millions and millions of workers. Praise God. And today, guys, we just get to, uh, we get to choose on whether or not we want to be a part of that. If you do, I'll be up front. You can talk to me. We'll see what God has planned for you. Father in heaven, you are so good to us to teach us about what it looks like that you are the Lord of the harvest. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your compassion and your love. And thank you for the truth. Thank you for the truth that will set us free. Thank you for the truth and realizing that we can't live this life any way we, we want and there not be consequences to that. And yet at the same time, Lord, you're a compassionate God. You, you have sent your son to step off his throne in heaven to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death to be buried, and to do exactly what he promised he would do, and that is to walk out of that grave three days later, conquering sin and death. Why? To pay our sin debt. And for this, Lord, we are eternally grateful. This week, Lord, as we are out and about doing our things with, with our own lives, whether it's work or hobby or going to the grocery store or wherever, I pray that we've got our spiritual antennas up, that when we hear somebody crying out or reaching out uh, regarding spiritual things, that we would step into that conversation and that we would bless them with the truth of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, if you'd please stand now for the, for the benediction. Today's benediction comes from the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, this is so good. He says, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Isn't that good? Knowing that in the Lord that your labor is not in vain. Amen and amen.